two more China Airlines pilots have tested positive for COVID. The Central Epidemic Command Center says both pilots had come in contact with their Indonesian colleague who had tested positive in Australia last week. The CECC has yet to find the source of infection for the two new cases, numbered 1100 and 1101. Case number 1100 is a Taiwanese national in his 50s. He visited the U.S. on duty between April 13th and 17th. On April 21st, his company arranged and paid for testing, and he tested negative then. On April 22nd, the CECC undertook contact tracing following the confirmed case in Australia, and today he tested positive. Case number 1101 is a Taiwanese national in his 30s, also a cargo pilot from the same airline. On April 18th this year, he went to Germany on duty with three other crew members. On April 22nd, he returned to Taiwan and went under the three-day quarantine. After completing the quarantine, he tested positive. According to CECC official Luo Yijing, there are to date four cases infected with a variant strain that are linked to the Indonesian pilot. It has been confirmed that cases number 1078, 1079, 1090 and 1091 were infected with the variant that was first found in the UK. The CECC is still investigating whether they share a common source of infection. China Airlines has seen seven members of its flight crews infected with COVID within a week's time, and to date, the source of their infection still eludes officials. This invisible transmission chain within the air carrier has many officials worried. Central Epidemic Command Center Chief Chen Shizhong says extensive testing will be done on the airline's flight crews to ascertain the source of infections. Health experts now admonish officials not to have a repeat of the cluster infection that happened in Taoyuan General Hospital back in January. Personally, I think these airlines that have frequent contacts with foreigners need to consider the impact on their business reputation from the lack of vaccination. Doctors are calling on China Airlines to have their pilots vaccinated post-haste, as more and more crew members test positive for COVID, but the source of infection has not been found. To find this invisible transmission chain within China Airlines, regardless of whether there's an asymptomatic carrier, which it's very probable, I hope the Epidemic Command Center will carry out a large-scale internal screening disinfecting the cockpits and the crew's rest compartments used in long-distance flights. To find the source of infection, the CECC has demanded that China Airlines pilots be tested for COVID at the end of their mandatory three-day home quarantine. There will be three waves of testing on China Airlines flight crews, with each wave lasting three days. A total of 1,270 people will be tested. We hope to not only conduct PCR tests, but that plasma can be collected to test for antibodies. We hope to ascertain how such a transmission chain was formed. Meanwhile, as some AstraZeneca vaccines will expire at the end of May, some are suggesting that the excess vaccines be given to neighboring countries that may be in need of COVID vaccines. 
If you can't use up the vaccines, you can consider helping other countries. Because if other countries can't get any vaccines, and if we have doubts about using up all of ours, maybe we can help others. As for COVID vaccines from other manufacturers, officials say they should arrive in Taiwan sometime in June. After 13 years of construction, the Taichung MRT is finally open. On Sunday, both current and former officials from both political parties came together to inaugurate the metro. Now, with the opening of the Green Line, the city will proceed with building a network with the construction of the Blue Line. Government officials gathered on stage to light up 18 green lights representing the 18 stations of the Taichung MRT's Green Line. From this moment on, Taichung citizens would be able to ride their own metro. The Green Line of the Taichung MRT took 13 years to build. Honestly, that's way too long. At one point, it seemed like it would never be completed, and Taichung citizens nearly lost faith. I often say we have to complete something that seems impossible to complete. It's the same with the Taichung MRT Green Line, and we did it. Mayor Liu was awash with sentiments as she looked back at the city's MRT construction. On November 21st last year, its first trial run came to a screeching halt when a coupling connecting two carriages broke, postponing the originally scheduled opening date of December 19th. A single MRT line is not enough. We have to construct an MRT network. We were able to overcome all kinds of challenges because we stood together. The central government was able to cooperate with local governments, and different municipalities were also willing to help one another. In the future, as the Green Line extends into Dakeng and Zhanghua, and when the Blue Line is being constructed, the central government will continue to support the Taichung MRT's construction with a budget set aside under the Forward-Looking Infrastructure Development Program. After 13 years, the Taichung MRT's Green Line is finally in full service. Former and current government officials gathered to celebrate this historic event. They included President Tsai Ing-wen and former President Ma Ying-jeou. Also among the VIPs were former and current Taipei mayors Hao Longbing and Ko Wenzhe, who helped the central city with their experience in constructing the MRT system in the capital. Conspicuously absent was former Mayor Lin Jialong, who recently resigned from the post of Transportation Minister in the wake of the fatal derailment of a Taroko Express train. I did personally invite Minister Lin, but he told me that he had other plans already, so he couldn't attend today's event. At noon on Sunday, the first train rolled down the track after the inauguration ceremony, opening a new chapter in the central city's transportation history. Following the fatal crash of a Taroko Express train earlier this month, Premier Su Zhenchang called a meeting with officials from the Ministry of Transportation and Taiwan Railways Administration on Sunday. Three objectives were highlighted in a finalized reform plan to enforce safety regulations during construction, to ensure the welfare of TRA employees, and to privatize the TRA in three years. But for all the talk, the underlying question is, will fares go up as these changes are being made? Let's see what Transportation Minister Wang Guocai had to say. 
If the TRA cannot provide safe services, then it's absolutely unreasonable to raise fares. With safety and with the government helping shoulder some of the TRA's financial burden, and when the public can feel confident that the operations are safe and services excellent, then we can talk about raising fares. Minister Wang also promised that TRA employees will not see their compensations and welfare compromised during the privatization process so that they can dedicate all their efforts toward improving TRA's operations and services. Rain finally descended on southern Taiwan over the weekend with the arrival of a cloud system from southern China. Rain began to fall in Kaohsiung and Pingdong Saturday afternoon with heavy precipitation in mountainous regions. The rainmakers from the Water Resources Agency seized the opportunity to perform cloud seeding at various reservoirs in central Taiwan, where atmospheric convection provided favorable conditions for rain. The long-awaited rain finally came. From early morning on, light rain persisted in the Kaohsiung area. In the city's northern districts like Gangshan, Yanchao, and Nanzi, the rain got progressively heavier. Rain also fell in the area around the border between Kaohsiung's Dashu district and Pingdong's Zhouru township. Vegetable farmers in Ziguan, Kaohsiung quickly harvested their crops before the afternoon downpour to prevent rain damage. Rain descended on southern Taiwan on Saturday afternoon. Kids living in mountainous areas were thrilled, running into the rain with their umbrellas. It's been a while since they last saw water falling from the sky. Meanwhile, in Shimen Reservoir up north, the rainmakers seized the favorable condition to perform cloud seeding. Similarly, chemicals were lit to induce precipitation at Miao Li's Minder Reservoir. Thanks to the active convection, the cloud seeding paid off at Zhengwen Reservoir in Jiayi. Rain began to fall at 11 a.m. People were excited to see the rain after the long drought. In addition, it rained on Guantian, Tainan, where a nearby reservoir was close to running dry. Although the rain didn't last long nor was it very heavy, it provided a much-needed boost for the parched reservoir. The National Games will come to New Taipei this October, and the city has already made a fashion statement from the event. A range of National Games sportswear and accessories has been released, with athletes promoting the line at a launch event earlier this week. A National Games athlete shows off a white hoodie emblazoned with the slogan, Always Ready to Play, alongside a jeans and bag combo. It's a breezy, casual outfit. This competitive shooter shows off a headscarf that holds a hairstyle in place while soaking up sweat. The next athlete lets his spare towel dangle from his pocket. A new trend, perhaps? And this swimmer brandishes a splash-proof bag, surely a must for all water sportsmen. This rucksack is made of splash-proof material. It's great for going swimming. It's not too big, but it can fit all our swim gear when we go out to practice. 
Always ready to play represents being prepared. That's what our athletes are doing every day. That attitude can be extended to promoting our municipal administration. So, seeing as we've already thought about it this much, we asked, why not turn the whole national games into a brand? We often say, what is your brand? Well, we are the national games. Wearing a branded polo neck, New Taipei Deputy Mayor Liu Heran explains the concept behind the project. The city government has invested a lot in turning the national games into a fashion brand for the first time. They're working with an online retailer to make the items available online. Pineapples have been a hot topic in Taiwan news ever since China suddenly banned Taiwanese pineapple imports in March. Before the ban was announced, most Taiwanese were unaware of just how much fruit farmers depend on the Chinese market. More than 90% of Taiwan's pineapple exports are destined to go across the strait. Because of that, the loss of the Chinese market is no small threat to the livelihoods of farmers down south. But the question is, why don't they sell pineapples elsewhere? It turns out they're trying, but the road to new markets is paved with hurdles. We get a close look at these challenges in our Sunday special report. Folded cardboard boxes pile up high next to this pineapple field. They're all labeled with the same words in simplified Chinese, Taiwan Golden Diamond Pineapples. Usually by this point in March, these boxes would be on their way to China packed with Taiwanese pineapples. But this year, they are just lying in storage. 海关总署26号在其政府网站上发布关于暂停进口台湾菠萝的通知 On February 26, China announced a ban on Taiwanese pineapples starting March 1st, saying pests had been found on the fruit. Taiwan's Council of Agriculture immediately convoked a press conference on the issue. 所有的凤梨在台湾输出到中国 Taiwan's pineapple exports to China and to 16 other countries all abide by WTO international trade regulations. If the shipments seem to contain any of three kinds of scale insects, they can simply be fumigated and put up for sale straight after. That's something Japan has done in the past. The COA responded quickly to China's surprise announcement. After all, pineapples are Taiwan's premier fruit export and 90% of the exports go to China. The ban rattled the Taiwanese public, who immediately leapt to action to soften the blow by buying local pineapples. Over in Pingdong, pineapple farmer Hong Mingsong lamented that the ticking time bomb of China had exploded at last. It's a fear that would float up in my mind sometimes. Since three or four years ago, every day I have been afraid that this would come true. The first to feel the impact of the cross-strait fruit war was Pingdong. That's because out of Taiwan's 40,000 tons of pineapple exports, 30,000 tons are grown in the county. But why do local pineapple farmers rely so much on the Chinese market? Pingdong Commissioner Pan Mong An weighs in. Fruit farmers in the early days, over the past six, seven years, pineapple prices have been very stable. 
farmers depended too much on short-haul shipping because short-haul trips have lower quarantine standards and you could get your food to China quickly. Taiwan can export pineapples to China tariff-free and shipping requires just three days. In contrast, Japanese imposes tariffs of 17% with longer shipping times and stricter quarantine regulations. For instance, in the past, we offered Japanese orders to some co-ops. They said it was a big hassle and that they'd rather not. Although the purchase price was good and the volume too, they said all the production and transportation chains would have to be redesigned and the packaging would have to meet Taiwan's stringent standards. Of course, Japan would also have to send someone to inspect the processing plants in Taiwan. They'd send over a customs inspection official. That's why farmers weren't willing to take the orders. China was the main export market for Taiwan pineapples, and it is still the main destination for Taiwanese sugar apple and wax apple exports. As the saying goes, putting all one's eggs in one basket is never a good idea. So why aren't more Taiwanese fruits exported to more markets like the US, Canada, and Australia? Taiwan is hailed as the kingdom of fruit, but for Taiwan to sell fruits abroad, it must first overcome two technical hurdles import quarantines and cold chain logistics. Now, one of the most talked about markets is Australia, but Australia's regulations are very different from that of other countries in two respects. Firstly, they are a non-epidemic area, so they are extremely cautious about scale insects. They don't want to let a pest to enter the country through our pineapples. So first of all, they require pineapples to be decrowned. After many years of talks, Australia finally announced it would allow the import of Taiwanese pineapples, albeit with strict import requirements. The pineapples would need to be decrowned and fumigated before leaving Taiwan. But these two processes drastically reduce the fruit's shelf life. Before the pandemic, air freight was about 70 NT per kilogram. Now it's 300 NT. It's a very high cost. So we're hoping to develop new ways to transport the pineapple by sea. That's the only way for them to be competitive. Marine shipping costs less, but since the pineapples are fumigated, the quality and the shelf life are limited. This is a technical hurdle we haven't yet overcome. Another challenge is cold chain logistics. During the entire shipping process, the pineapples must be stored at between 12 and 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, to be honest, if Taiwan wants to be competitive internationally, it needs to set up cold chain logistics systems. Without them, any talk of being competitive is just idle chit-chat. Our country should muster up all the power it can to set up pre-cooling and pre-storage mechanisms at every production site or at every agricultural co-op. Only with a comprehensive cold chain transport system can we truly be competitive internationally. In 2019, Taiwan became the first country in Asia to export guavas to the U.S. To prevent pest transfer, the U.S. ruled that the guavas must undergo cold treatment procedures before arrival. That means the fruit has to be stored at below 1 degree Celsius for 17 consecutive days before entering the U.S. market. Before they are put in the containers, we have to lower the temperature to 1 degree Celsius. 
After they are pre-cooled to one degree, we can pack them up and load them on. The container follows U.S. specifications with components to track the temperature inside the three spots required. A similar process had been set up for jujube exports. A Taiwan-developed cultivar, the Snow Beauty, was exported to the Netherlands for the first time in January this year. The feat was possible thanks to improvements in cold chain technology. It was the same with bananas. We didn't establish a cold chain for them right at the start. That's why in the end, the Philippines and the U.S.'s Dole Food Company replaced us in the Japanese market. Once the fruits are out of Taiwan, they face stiff competition from all over the world. For pineapples, Taiwan's biggest competitor is the MD2 cultivar produced in the Philippines and Central and South America. Compared with Taiwan's golden diamond pineapples, the MD2s are more fibrous and less sweet. But since their size is more consistent and they ripen at the same rate, they've become popular around the world. Exporting pineapples is extremely difficult. At the production stage, we would have to ensure they have a uniform quality. Even after they are harvested, we need to separate them into different types and price them by the box. So it's a very technical process, including the management aspect of it all. Hong's orchard workers are busy as ever harvesting pineapples. Although the China market is gone, there are still Japanese orders to fulfill. Today, workers are filling a cold storage container with pineapples bound for Japan. We're using this as an opportunity to slow down the reflex. We'll start over with storage technology and quarantine technology to try and get our fruits, be they guavas, pineapples or wax apples, sold all around the world. Don't underestimate us. Taiwanese farmers are looking to become more competitive in the global market. For that to happen, though, the subsidies offered by the government must be put to good use. With hard work and good luck, the pineapple crisis could mark a new epoch in Taiwan's fruit industry.